everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Oh, Alexandra, is it? What oh. a lovely name. They call me Andrea. Is that because you just turned 40? <laughs> I feel 80. I mean, in this day and age. Yes. I'm Andrea Subasati, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I just you, said that. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. What? This is actual aging. This is aging on air. <laughs> Where am I? I, You know, we, we've talked a bit about elder horror. It's definitely something that a lot of you have brought up to us as a topic, and we were kind of waiting for the right time, and you know what? It's February. It is frigid and cold and dark, so why not lean into that seasonal depression and uh, feel real sad about some things going on in the world and what we all have to look forward to in our final moments if we get them? Wow. That is an intro. That is setting the tone. Well, it's interesting because, like, as I mentioned, so many people have brought this kind of topic to us along with some of the films we're going to talk about today, but I've really felt like a shift in myself, the way I perceive aging, not through like a media lens, but through an interpersonal lens. Mm. You know, my last grandparent passed away late last year. My parents are certainly getting older, though, you know, knock wood, they're still in good health right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of my friends' parents are getting older, and like the realities and the logistics of their care is weighing really heavily on them. So I find I'm having more and more conversations in my personal life about aging on top of myself getting older. And I'm not like I'm 36. I'm not that old, really. Mm -hmm. But like I'm feeling changes in my body and like I don't know what the kids listen to these days. (laughs) And it's like I've definitely left the generation that is being targeted by marketers. Yes. Yes. Well, I understand the feeling. Um, As Alex alluded to, I turned 40 last month and um, I thought I was ready for it because I thought, you know, I'm pretty set up. I have what many people would consider a dream job, my day job. I've got this amazing podcast on the side with you. I've got a whole lot of things going on. I have my general health, but I think it was just last week that I filled out a survey. It was for Patreon, actually. It was like, how do you feel about uh, stuff going on in Patreon? And they get a little bit of demographic data and just clicking that box that I was in the 40 to 45 age bracket hit me like a ton of bricks. Well, I did a little beep, boop, boop, boop calculations today. And can I tell you something that blew my mind? (laughs) Didn't do it. You and I have been doing this podcast for a quarter of our lives. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. That's amazing. It's amazing. But I was like, wow, that's a quarter of my life. Yeah. And and those moments happen all the time. Those moments happen when you're like, hey, it's like the 50th anniversary of the fucking Backstreet Boys or some shit. And you're like, what? And, you know, there's so much nostalgia media out there right now with the Karate Kid coming back, with Dexter coming back. Everything feels like it's rolling over. And the fact that we're able to be like, ah, I remember watching that when it aired. Oh, boy. I sound. Like my folks. And like you, you know, my folks are also healthy, but in the few visits I've had with them in the last two years under COVID, I feel like they've aged quite a bit. And, you know, it really makes you contemplate that age is a lot more than a number. There's a lot 
more to that. It has to do with your health, your mobility, your outlook, your attitude. There is so much that goes into it. And certainly gender plays a big part of it. And also going into this episode, you know, hag horror, hag exploitation, grand damn guignol. I did a little mini talk as an introduction for whatever happened to baby Jane a couple of years ago at the review. And I remember being like, okay, I've always wanted to dig deeper into this topic. Now I have the chance for this thing. And I tried to dig deeper and I'm like, this topic doesn't appear to be very deep. Mm-hmm. The extent to the scholarship I was able to find at the time is just like crazy bitches. And that's just not quite a lot of listicles. A lot of listicles. And, you know, indeed, I was able to find a book called Grand Dame Guignol Cinema, a history of hag horror from baby Jane to mother. And this was by Peter Shelley in 1962. And it appears to be the definitive text. It appears to be like one of the few books devoted solely to that subject. But it is, in essence, holistical. And so I'm really interested to dive deeper into the subject with you because there are so many dimensions to it and a lot of them are, you know, off page. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I was putting together my notes for this and sometimes when we do episodes, it's like, ooh, there's a lot of like architecture of scholarship that Mm -hmm. we kind of have to work around and we put ourselves into it. However, as Andrea was just saying, which I agree with, there wasn't necessarily a lot of the scholarship from the way I was receiving these films. So I kind of feel like we're coming into this topic just personally filling in some of the gaps with our own observations and um, working through it because I've got a few academic sources I'll be citing this episode, but they're not making up the bulk of my thoughts or my arguments towards it. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I also want to add, and I think I've brought this up in the podcast before, that I have kind of aged with horror. And I think when we did our episode on The Exorcist and indeed when we did our episode on The Shining— I related to the kids when I was a kid. When I got older, I started relating to the moms. And now that I'm in this whole different demographic, now that I'm in this different age bracket when I'm doing fucking Patreon satisfaction surveys, I'm watching movies differently once again. But did you get a coupon with the survey? (laughs) Seniors Day is Wednesday, so I waited until then. Oh, okay, good, good. Aging has gone for me from something I could think academically about and be critical about because why do we treat women of a certain age this way on screen and blah, blah, blah. But as we watch people around us age and it becomes much more tactile, it's much more confusing. Mm -hmm. It's um, the logistics of care, the burden of care, which we're going to talk about in this episode, feel really prevalent and mm-hmm. we start looking at everything adding up it's terrifying to think you know in my life I'm just kind of feeling like I'm back on my two feet I'm financially sound I'm you know thank God and I'm doing all this stuff that actually feels really good for me for the first time properly on my own yeah and it's like I feel like the next big thing to hit me financially is my parents care interesting and that makes me go like Whoa! because <laughs> like you look at the numbers of what it costs for elder care and it's scary yeah It's so scary. And we're going to talk a lot about that in this episode. But um, I think the way that age is perceived is one thing and the way that age is dealt with is another thing. Mm -hmm. And I think both of these films, today we're going to talk about Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Relic. Uh, They deal with a lot of the realities, a lot of the things we don't want to talk about, a lot of the things that feel very taboo Mm -hmm. about how we care about 
people who age. Yeah. I think that's a really good starting point because to say that this is our hag horror episode, that this is our exploitation episode, we've been calling it internally our elder horror episode. And I think semantics in this case really do matter because, yes, these films feature older people in uh, something of a grotesque light mm-hmm. as, as the object of terror. But at the same time, I don't feel like these are films that monstrosize them. I really didn't get that sense of it. And I really don't know how I feel about the term. To this day, I don't love the term hagsploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know the term hag comes from what is it like hagusa, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which was a, I believe an old English word for witch. So that's where hag comes from, which and, is a literary archetype. Yeah, that is a reality, and that's fine. But the thing is, aging in and of itself is terrifying. If you have ever personally cared for someone who is aging, I have heard all kinds of stories and they are not easy. And if you are out there caring for someone who is aging or if you have or if you're about to, it's so much. Mm -hmm. It is so much of your heart and soul and body and everything. It is this incredible weight that we put on people. It's an emotional obligation in some ways, but, you know, you also wouldn't not do it. And, you know, my personal experiences with it, I haven't had to care for someone directly, but people around me have. And you just see the toll it takes on people and the kind of pain that comes from it. And so I get that there's like exploitation, psycho bitty, all of these other terms. And um, yeah, you can apply them. You can make your listicle to it. But I think both of these films and what we should look for in our horror films is let's talk about the realities. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the challenges because there are so many people who are going through this and it's breaking them and it's hurting them. And, you know, if we look to films as catharsis and understanding and some kind of connection, then we need to kind of keep making films that do explore these stories and not just put them in a listicle. We need to talk about why is elder care so associated with elder horror? Mm -hmm. Why is it traumatizing for so many people? Not only the people who are themselves aging, and it's incredibly hard for them, but the people around them, you know, our society keeps just putting it off and like, Mm -hmm. we're not going to deal with it. I mean, look at what we've gone through in this pandemic. What has gone on in nursing homes the world over? What is happening in those places with the COVID outbreaks and people dying and people not being able to see their loved ones or interact with each other? And those stories are heartbreaking and terrifying because they make sense in some ways, but they also don't make sense in others. And it's so tricky and it's so emotional. So I certainly feel a lot of emotion for both of these films, but Mm -hmm. there is so little being done for people in these situations. And just know if you're in one of those situations, you know, you're not alone. And um, yeah, there is some help out there, but not nearly enough. So feel free to call your local representatives, ask what they're doing uh, for this cause, ask, um, you know, government officials what they can do, what they can offer, what resources are available to you. But it's not easy, even if you get access to many of these things. No, it's not. So maybe let's go back to Grand Dame Guignol Cinema, this so-called seminal text. I had some problems with it. Now, according to Peter Shelley, and he is, I feel like he is defensive. 
defensive of these films. He is definitely defensive of the prevailing idea within exploitation that these were roles that went to actresses who were over the hill, who were out to pasture. This was a quick paycheck. This was uh, an artistic step down just to get a quick cash grab at the end of their career. And he fights against that strongly. Um, Grand Dam, as you probably know, is kind of like a, a glamorous woman of great dignity and prestige who is very preoccupied by social etiquette and standing, the Grand Dam. And then Grand Guignol, we've talked about in this podcast before, the French theater movement that incorporated graphic violence and blood. And so his typification is a horror movie which uses Grand Guignol effects and features an actress in a leading role, playing a character with all the airs and graces of a grand dame. Now, again, I feel like that doesn't really give me enough. You're just kind of fleshing out an archetype in more flattering tones, it kind of seems like. You know, if you're not going to talk about the hag, you're not going to talk about Hagazus, you're not going to talk about the witch and the crone and all that. The grand dame, she's so dignified. Well, okay. Dignity is a big theme in all of these films, I think. And, and you know, he further notes that these roles are often occupied by actresses who haven't appeared and leading roles in some time, but he's quick to defend their artistic integrity. And his book starts with Baby Jane, and then there's analyses of films straight up to 2007's Inside. What? Oh, like Beatrice Dahl is... Yeah, and he's going on about her dress, about how she, like, carries herself, and I was just kind of like, this is a bit of a stretch. There was a lot of films on that list that I hadn't seen. I remember seeing Misery on that list. I remember seeing uh, Night Morning, which is better known for its alternate title, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, which is on Shudder right now, Mm -hmm. and deliciously balls-to-the-wall terrible. But my criticism of his book is that his definition his typification is both too broad and too shallow. You know, this is a puddle instead of the ocean that it is. You know, he defines the Grand Dame Guignol, but he doesn't really characterize her with anything but moral ambiguity, which doesn't really give me enough to chew on. And further, I think, like, for the supposedly landmark text on the subject, he manages to avoid what I consider to be the central tenet of exploitation, which is the idea of the monstrous feminine push to an extreme. But how do you feel about the term? I think it's really reductive. I think there is a sense when you use the term hag, it kind of conjures the notion of a witch and the witch as a threatening figure, mm-hmm. some kind of figure on the outskirts of whatever narrative you're telling who's going to come do something to you. However, disruptor. Exactly. Mm-hmm. However, when you look at, you know, we've talked about, um, in this case, older women, they're marginalized throughout society. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often, you know, denied access to things, denied access to care and seen as, you know, pariahs in some ways. Um, you know, in, in the witch hunts uh, throughout Europe, you know, they were hunted. Uh, they were yeah. harmed. And so I've been actually working a bit on something uh, about the term about hag. Uh-huh. And uh, it's just, you know, made me think a lot about it and how part of me was like, oh, is this a term we need to like reclaim like a bitch? And then I'm like, or is this just a term we don't use anymore? Mm. Because it serves no one and serves to only further marginalize a lot of people who need help, but they're now kind of being cast as these outsider figures. Um, I did see something that was talking about, you know, kind of elder horror, and they were talking a bit about Drag Me to Hell. I Uh, saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get time to kind of delve that deep into it, but I was like, that's such a great movie. We've talked about uh, Drag Me to Hell on this podcast. Really early. Mm -hmm. But that's such an interesting, like, portrayal of it, and it's so over the top. Yeah. And 
I think now, I mean, I haven't listened to that episode in a long time, but I mean, now I feel, you know, it kind of plays in that Sam Raimi trope of like over the top silliness. Yeah. But it also does harm. It does harm to the way we, you know, perceive women, especially a woman looking for financial support. Right. And I feel like when it comes to whatever happened to Baby Jane, which is such a fantastic movie, such a terrific story, incredible performances. To write it off as hagsploitation and these are just psycho biddies going crazy in their house and doing horrible things to each other really does the film a disservice. It puts a layer of dust on it that's not fair. Yeah, I mean, it puts it in a box and puts it over there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there, it, you know, we'll talk about the camp qualities to it and all those other elements. But there's a lot of like real hard truths in that film, mm-hmm. you know, for as fun and over the top as it is. And that's why I always get a bit like um, wary when we kind of come up with the terms and we categorize things. It can be really fun and easy in some ways, but it also tends to do the work itself a bit of a disservice yeah. um, rather than, again, continue to humanize and explore those stories because, um, you know, one of the things we can talk about with Baby Jane is, you know, how it kicked off that whole movement of exploitation that, you know, we've been chatting about. But, like, they're kind of like lesser copies each time. Yeah. Um, they become more and more rote. They become more, you know, silly and over the top. And, you know, they take something that people were initially interested in and whatever happened to Baby Jane and continue to exploit that popularity but diminishing it each time. That's right. And I feel like that's where exploitation comes from. When people say that it started with Baby Jane, it's like, well, Baby Jane was kind of separate from it. It kicked it off, yes. But it, I agree with you that it's the, it's the replicas and the wash, rinse, repeat that gave it that exploitation. Yeah. Now, before we get into the films, what bugged me about Peter Shelley was he did not do a discussion on gender. He did not do a discussion. Mm. Like, gender and ageism go together. And I, I think we can all agree that women are held to unfair standards of youth that are tied to sexist ideas, uh, that women are reduced to their sexual and reproductive value to men. And if this is news to you, I don't know what podcast you think you're listening to, but I did find um, that an essay by Susan Sontag, uh, The Double Standard of Age from 1983. I had a look through that. It's an oldie, but a goldie, and just really spells it out for you. Aging means a humiliating process of gradual sexual disqualification. And, like, not only are we as women overtly told to be preoccupied with aging, a lot of our white hetero beauty ideals come from fertility cues. Stuff like rosy cheeks and lips, stuff like removing body hair. There's a streak of pedophilia in a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, if we look at, you know, how the Hollywood system is structured, it's you're an ingenue, then you're a leading lady, and then what? Mm-hmm. Um, then what are you doing? You're kind of lucky if you get to do the character roles, or if you're Meryl Streep, and you get those leading roles. But the stories about women, and I really feel strongly, and you know, all of you listening to the podcast know this, that media, films, TV, etc., are really important mirrors to our own societal struggles. Mm-hmm. When we diminish the story of people who are aging, particularly women, um, it 
affects the way we perceive them in real life because, again, I've already said it, but films are tools for empathy. So there's reasons why, uh, misogynist reasons why we don't get to see a lot of engaging, happy stories about older women, but why we have lots of films like um, As Good As It Gets, where Jack Nicholson, who is aged in that film, gets to fall in love with Helen Hunt. Well, yes, the fucking Oedipal taboo. Uh, I came across that when I was reading the Shelley book. He points out that the Grand Dame Guignol trope emerged at a time when gender roles were especially homogenous due to TV and pop culture disseminating these standards. And we're going to talk more about this when we get into Baby Jane, because that was a very specific moment in cinema. But he also mentioned that when TV started pulling male actors out of the studio contract formula, older actors were able to land leading roles with much younger actresses playing their love interest. And I was thinking about that because, holy fuck, that edible taboo is still so much a thing. I saw a handful of movies in the past five years that I was like, that is not an age-appropriate coupling. And it's 2020, guys. It's almost like 100 years since cinema started. Um, The Wrong Missy, have you seen that? No. That just kind of farted out onto Netflix, and it's David Spade. Mm. And it's about how he meets two chicks named Missy, and he enters them both into his phone and invites the wrong one on holiday. (gasps) And he winds up, of course, predictably, like, learning her true value, and he winds up falling in love with her. She is at least half his age. At least. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Johnson, I had to stop watching it because I was like, this is gross. Watching them make out is absolutely gross. And I can't think of very many examples of the inverse apart from the Ozark, which I've just started watching again. I think there are probably a couple. I feel like there's a movie where Meryl Streep had one of her love interests was like Keanu Reeves. Mm. So I feel like they do it, but when they do it, it's this real kind of like, celebrated, we did it, let's not talk about it for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it happens to someone who is as deified in Hollywood as Meryl Streep. Right. It's not a common occurrence. It's not happening on the reg. Right. And it's also Keanu Reeves, but like you're never going to get that gold digger rhetoric. I think there was, maybe, I think J-Lo gets that a bit. I feel like she's done a romantic comedy recently Mm -hmm. where one of the guys was like younger and it was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that even feels pretty rare and yeah and now it's kind she of framed looks in like a, she's 25 well it's framed in a kind of good for her kind of thing yeah for the longest time it was just like oh you're looking for your mommy i'll be your mommy you know <laughs> and i mean there's so many stories of you know actresses who are in there anywhere from like mid 30s to 50s playing moms of people who are only a few years younger than yeah. them like there is a lot of even if it's not overt this kind of age shaming complex that after you you know bypass this certain age, you're playing the mom. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky to be cast in something. Yeah. You know? If you're still desirable enough to be a mom and still a sexual object in some way, shape, or form. But shall we get into the films? Yes. Let's. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene. An Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers 
The insistent call of a buzzer, better left unanswered. A telephone that has become an object of fear. A supper tray that will not be touched. A window barred against the world. A hammer. A mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you, if you're long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, this motion picture is quite unlike anything they have ever done. It is a bold essay in the art of the macabre, a venture to the ultimate reaches of terror. A motion picture definitely not for the squeamish. And we beg you, as the tension builds to the screaming point, as shock after shock assaults your senses, try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. No, we, uh, we can't show you anymore. Only when you see whatever happened to baby Jane will you know. And the answer is total suspense. Former child vaudeville star Jane and her sister, a former movie star now paraplegic Blanche, live together in a large house in Los Angeles. Jane is a bitter and resentful caretaker to Blanche, due to Blanche controlling their finances and having been a successful actor before the accident which caused her paralysis, which Jane is supposedly responsible for due to her drinking. Blanche quietly confides in their maid Elvira that she plans to sell the house and have Jane institutionalized. Jane learns of this plan and begins to cut Blanche off from the rest of the world. However, interest around Blanche is growing as her old films are being played on TV. Jane decides that she wants to revive her old vaudeville act and hires the pianist Edwin Flagg to accompany her. Eventually, Elvira discovers Blanche locked in her own room, and Jane kills Elvira with a hammer. The police begin to search for Elvira after she is reported missing, and Jane decides to make a run for it, taking Blanche with her. Edwin arrives at the house and discovers Blanche bound to her bed and goes to tell the police. Jane regresses to a childlike state and takes Blanche to the beach. Blanche is near death after days of starvation and dehydration. Blanche confesses to Jane that it was in fact her, Blanche, who caused her own paralysis in a fit of anger trying to hit Jane with the car and missing. Jane laments that they could have been friends this whole time as the police close in on them and Jane begins to perform her old vaudeville act. Gives me chills. That is like the best twist in cinema history, perhaps. And like giant spoiler, obviously, a faculty of horrors full of spoilers. We're going to give the ending away, but I never hear about people talking about the twisting or ending the way they talk about other mm-hmm. films that have one. But what a great one. Well, it just changes the whole dynamic. The whole of the dynamic. Film. In some ways, it's, you know, a very small thing, but in other ways, it's huge. You feel the ramifications. And Betty Davis's, you know, line of, we, this whole time we could have been friends is, 
devastating. It breaks my heart that after all they've been through together in this film, it's not like how you took everything away from me, you, you, you. It's that forgiveness. It's gutting. And it also, I think, really smartly pays off that moment at the beginning of the film when they're children and their mom is saying, you know, after, you know, Jane is run off being a brat, mm-hmm. you know, the center of attention in the star. And her mom is like, you know, don't forget about them. Like, you got to take care of them. Like, just, you know, treat them better than they treated you. And yeah. Blanche is like, I won't forget. And it's like, shit, she really didn't forget. No. Even in her, like, lovely, nice, warm Blanche way, she was still trying, like, she still had this anger within her. Mm-hmm. It's all the things that go unspoken. And gosh, I mean, if you've got a sister, I'm sure you know about all of the things that go unspoken. Oh, yes. Yeah. Bitterness and rivalry and jealousies that fester and, like, scoring little points here and there over a lifetime is not lost on me. But before we get into the film, I mean, Alex and I were talking about it before, and so much has been made of the feud between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. I don't think we need to get too, too far into it here. There's so many resources out there. Who would do it better? Exactly. So um, we're going to link in the show notes um, the fantastic podcast. You must remember this has an episode about whatever happened to Baby Jane from their Joan Crawford series. That will be linked. Start there. That's the best. Start there. It's, you know, honestly, of everything I read um, and was able to watch or listen to, it kind of feels like the most even-handed version of events, Mm -hmm. as Karina Longworth is wont to do. I find she's always a very fair voice within these Hollywood Uh scrabbles, um, fights. Um, And then, of course, there's the Ryan Murphy uh, series Feud, Mm -hmm. um, which I I managed to get about two episodes through, yeah. um, and it kind of feels like every scene is supposed to be this, like, mic drop, oh, no, she didn't moment. Yeah. And it just wore me down a bit, and um, it's funny because Susan Sarandon as Betty Davis looks so much like her. I know. And, like, the, the subtle makeup and everything, they do really, like, she looks, especially in the Baby Jane makeup, looks so much like her, but she does the scene as Betty Davis playing Baby Jane, and you're like, well, no one can do Betty Davis but Betty Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so it just, like, it totally, like, would snap me out of the moment. So yeah. I, I didn't finish it, but that's also out there. I would say that's a much more dramatized version of the best. Yeah, and it, it, I feel like it's beautiful, and it captures the era and the moment, yeah. but it does it does kind of turn things up to 11. And that was a series that ran in spring 2017. I think it was supposed to be the first season of a series? Yeah, I think they did one recently about, like, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. Oh, they did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they kind of, like, kept it up about these big, like, um, you know, cultural moments where there was a feud. And I was trying to, th- I couldn't think of another example of a feud quite on par with this one. Yeah, I mean, Ryan Murphy, I think of him as prolific. Yeah, he yeah. puts out a lot of content. He sure does. And God bless him. Um, but yeah, there's like books, there's all kinds of stuff out there. So we're not going to dive too much into it because there, there's people who have already been talking about it and we've got a lot of other stuff to talk about with this film. Right. But suffice it to say that this was back at a time when studios held a roster of stars, actors were under contract, and so leading lady gigs were a different kind of competitive than they are now or have been since. Betty Davis had been with Warner Brothers and then they acquired Crawford later. So they squabbled over roles. They squabbled over men, apparently. They talked shit about each other publicly. And then they appear in this film together. And, you know, there's some competing theories about whose idea it was, if it was uh, Aldrich or apparently it was Crawford's idea that she read the book and pitched it. But consensus is that she proposed that she appear 
opposite Davis. Mm -hmm. And I think it really paid off. I think they're both sensational in this film, but the film didn't heal any wounds in spite of its success. Crawford didn't appear in the follow-up, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which came out uh, two years later in 1964, which was conceived by Aldrich to feature the two actresses in opposite roles. Have you seen that one? I think a very long time ago. I was reading a bit about it for this episode, and it felt really familiar, but I honestly can't remember. It's just not the same, and it's trying to be, and just it's um, Olivia de Havilland. Yeah, yeah. Who, like, what? it's not her fault, but no. there's a certain magic about Baby Jane that I think it has to do with the verite, but also the incredible story. Mm-hmm. Now, fundamentally, I don't see these characters as being intrinsically crazy or evil by virtue of their gender, age, or solitude. I feel like the antagonist here is the Hollywood celebrity machine that chewed them up, spat them out, and pitted them against each other. And I feel like that's the very real reflection. It's not that, oh, they were also assholes off stage. It's like, no, they were dealing with this for real. No, it feels like, you know, all the things that they're saying to each other as sisters, they could have been saying to each other as colleagues. Yeah. And and I think another important thing to note is that uh, Davis and Crawford were in their early 50s when this was shot, um, which was something I only, like, knew when I was researching for this episode because it's, you know, I was like, gosh, they must be at least in their late 60s. And I'm like, ooh, early 50s looking much closer than a lot of other things in my life. Well, and I feel like that's another conception that I'm coming to grips to as I'm getting older. I'm like, oh, no, I know how old she is. You know what I mean? Like, there's the popular opinion of how old is what and what that looks like in women and... And there's the truth. So I've come to whatever happened to baby Jane, like, I don't know. I feel like I saw it in my 20s, um, early 20s, and then probably saw it again in my late 20s, and now I'm watching it again in my mid-30s. And there's so many beats to this film that I'm like, yes, I remember this so vividly. I'm right on track with it. But one of the elements that always kind of surprises me, it's the small element. Um, It's mentioned in the beginning of the film, and it kind of carries this weight throughout the rest of it, is that Blanche's films are being shown on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, she's even watching herself. And uh, the neighbors are now interested in her again. And it's the intergenerational thing of, like, the neighbor mother and the daughter. I think the revival of Blanche's career through her films on TV speaks to the enduring, if somehow tentative, quality of films as a medium as they can be repurposed and accessed on this new platform at the time, which was television. And now, of course, we've got how many streaming services that we can flick through and access and all of that kind of stuff. But... You know, here this was a new thing. It was, you know, you went to see a movie at the time and you had to remember it. Uh, We weren't able to access them, you know, 45 days after a theatrical window. We, Mm -hmm. you know, had to wait if we got to see them at all. Uh, So then film kind of coming back on TV was another way to rediscover the medium and the stories and the talent. So it was a pretty big thing, especially for like those golden age Hollywood actors. Now, Jane's persona becomes even more outmoded. Not only was her act based on her child, childishness, uh, which it also celebrates that youthful kind of little girl, I'm sending a letter to daddy because he died thing. But it was on stage. It was a vaudeville Mm -hmm. act. It was a live performance. Um, And I think that's something that theater struggles with and tries to celebrate as a, you know, lapsed theater person myself. (laughs) That's honestly how much of the theatrical experience is sold to us now. You have to see it live. You, You have to experience it live, even though now a lot of theater companies are finding different ways to make their content digital. And Jane 
trying to revive her career by hiring Edwin, who is a pianist and an opportunist, in my opinion, which cost Jane money given to her by Blanche for these unsettling performances, which were treated to. It's uncomfortable because the medium of film and the way Jane's performance at the end of the film, the letter to daddy thing, it is so clear how no longer relevant she is because she's no longer young enough to be singing letters to daddy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And it's a performance meant for a large stage that, you know, changes over. You know, they even mention it in one of the early interstitials of the film where, you know, Jane doesn't have it, but Blanche does when they're in the film industry. Yeah. I like that you point that up because I felt like it was really noteworthy that Blanche's career revival was largely accidental for her part. It wasn't that she was better. It wasn't that she was more talented. It was that her work experienced a revival that revived her fame, whereas Jane's didn't. Well, and I think you can kind of feel that tension in the opening scene. Like, Jane is this outgoing, like, brash character. She's going to go on stage and perform letters to Daddy, but she's also going to pitch a fit backstage about ice cream, whereas Blanche is, like, sitting quietly in the sidelines and just like, I'll get them one day. Mm-hmm. And that's a big difference between theater and film acting. Interesting. That's why it's not a lot of people can successfully go between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, film, you have to take everything down. You have to, like, you have to know your angles in a certain way, how to play to a camera, and then how to also just be in the scene with partners or on a green screen with a fucking ball being like a major character uh, that's going to be CGI'd in later. Like that is a different set of talents, whereas theater, you got to perform for the back row. That's right. You've got to project. You've got to make everything clear and visible. And some actors can do both. Mm-hmm. And a lot of theater these days is sold on film talent going back to theater or going to theater for the first time. It's a whole other discussion. However, I, I feel like we see the real difference between these two women in the mediums that they were successful in. Yeah. And so Jane's inability to revive her career just speaks to what we lose when like media transitions mm-hmm. when it you know moves to the next thing and we aren't able to capture what has come before it i mean it really made me think about how are you preserved slash remembered like at the end of the film blanche makes the confession to jane yeah and seemingly no one else Mm-hmm. And Jane's, you know, in woo-woo land. She's not all there at that point. Mm-hmm. So if you think about, like, if, you know, Blanche dies at the end or whatever happens at the end, it's not going to be the story of, like, you know, tragically this film actress dies, but we also figured out she, like, caused her own paralysis. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, scary hag-like sister murders other sister, mm-hmm, you know. And I think it just speaks to this really complicated thing that we now have when we produce content or we're out there even just having social media profiles. What happens to us when we die? How will we be remembered? And what narratives can we control or not control? You know, you look at like celebrities after they die and, um, you know, they're celebrated until they're called out on certain activities, you know, as often they should be. But does that take away from what they have done in their legacy? And so it's a really complicated 
complicated thing. And I think it just speaks to our lack of power towards the end of our life. Yeah. But I love the note that it ends on, the fact that Mm -hmm. we don't know whether or not Blanche made it. We don't know whether the truth got out. It got out to us and it got out between them and it's good enough for me. Totally. Yeah. Like, it's such a satisfying ending. Mm. I don't care whether Blanche lives or dies. Not because I don't care about the character. No. But it would have been kind of picking a side. It would have been like, this person won because fame is all that mattered to them and fame went down in history as this. We don't get to know that. No, and it's more about the pain that has been inflicted because I find the ultimate message of the story is not that the tension was between the two of them. It was through all of these outside factors Mm -hmm. that were influencing them. And, you know, when I look at what Blanche was dealing with in her life and what Jane was dealing with in her life, they were almost kind of like puzzle pieces. Like if they'd worked together, they could have been okay. Happy. Best friends. Sisters. But these tensions, the outside influence and misogyny and tension that finance and caring for someone with a disability can yield is intense. And I think it speaks to, it's not always about the personal. Yeah. It's about factors outside of ourselves and it's hard to cut through them. Which is, I think, why I struggle with like these psycho biddies. They're not psycho biddies. They are normal women who were in very extenuating circumstances. Now, I did find an essay called Must the Players Keep Young, which is an analysis of early Hollywood's cult of youth. And that's by Heather Addison, and I'll link to it below. And this is an essay about how Hollywood's cult of youth was firmly established by the late 20s. And she traces it all the way back to the scientific revolution, which is where aging became pathologized and therefore something to be prevented or at least delayed. And then in the 1910s and 20s, there were changes to manufacturing, which squeezed people into tighter age and skill categories. And then we've got consumer culture, which focused so much on young adults, less set in their ways, eager to embrace technology, and whatever promised a more carefree, leisurely life. Like, this was a time of great change societally. People didn't want to be like their parents. They didn't want to work themselves to the bone. And so Hollywood emerged as this example of this glamorous life where you could just be young forever. Youthfulness itself was promoted as an advantageous state. Get hip or get left behind. And then there was the deluge of shame, the cosmetics industry, diet products, exercise machines. Advertisers wanted young consumers and people wanted to be young consumers. And so when Hollywood emerged as this cultural institution, the popular press always emphasized the youth of Hollywood and just flashing all this unattainable lifestyle and glamour that was not at all feasible for actual young people of that demographic. They sold that rags-to-riches fantasy that would become the American dream that we've talked about a lot. In the early 20s, the average Hollywood career was reportedly five to seven years. And Hollywood was always looking for the next fresh face, even going so far as to holding contests with magazines to become the the next big thing. And the messaging was very explicit in its stipulation that women be young because the so-called cruel eye of the camera captured every line, every wrinkle, every crow's foot. Men, on the other hand, were encouraged to be tall to audition <laughs> for stardom. And then by 1929, these same magazines were dramatizing the popularity of plastic 
plastic surgery. So I think in tandem with what you're saying, there was a cultural movement at the time where if you weren't young, you weren't it. We're done. God, no. And I mean, actually, one of the um, examples that, you know, of not being able to preserve your own legacy is best exemplified uh, by one of the stars of whatever happened to Baby Jane and Joan Crawford and what happened with Mommy Dearest. I only saw Mommy Dearest this last year, like in full. You know, I've seen the clips. I know no wire haggles, (laughs) you know, and I can do that. It's, you know, I know it. But, you know, the conversation around what happens to people is so different different now. And I think what you're talking about with like, it was always framed a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything outside of that frame is kind of perceived to be like an abnormal sideshow. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's where you get a lot of this exploitation stuff, but you've got these kind of cracks with something like whatever happened to baby Jane, which is actually a much more nuanced, thoughtful exploration of what is aging and yeah. what is it to be old, especially in a world, in a society that is now with, you know, from the invention of the photograph to film to television and beyond really beginning to prioritize that youthful vigor. Um, and I was thinking a bit about great old Canadian thinker and writer and theorist and teacher Marshall McLuhan and of course his famous theory of the medium is the message Uh, and I think the fact that whatever happened to baby Jane is a film about the film industry and aging women as TV became an everyday pastime for most of the population is a commentary on itself the grandeur of film is changing and decaying in some ways but um, it still retains more relevance than a lot vaudeville act. Wow, live vaudeville act. That actually makes me think of, like, we're talking about a horror movie, and when we talk about how horror movies reflect reality, it's almost like non-horror movies distort reality. Mm-hmm. They sell you on a fantasy that is so glossy that it's actually harmful and wrecks people who feel like they're not living the way they should, whereas horror shows us the ugliness, and when we relate to that, it's scary. It's terrifying. I think both of these films, but I, I think they merge really purposefully um, horror with heartbreak um, mm-hmm. because there is something real pure about Jane getting on that baby Jane face and doing that act and like she believes it she's in it yeah. and we are now witnessing this outmoded way of being and acting that is no longer relevant yeah. and is in fact odd and horrific to us but that was where her power lay and she has no access to it and in fact she's kind of being manipulated and financially abused by Edwin Flagg the mm-hmm. pianist to get something out of her for it yeah. Um, so I actually did want to talk a little bit about what it means to age and why the elderly are vulnerable. So I went to the U.S. National Library of Medicine online, not in person, and I found an article which we'll link in the show notes, A Framework for Understanding Old Age Vulnerabilities by two of the best names I have ever heard of, Elizabeth Schroeder Butterfill wow. and Ruli Miranti. They sound like Pokemon. They sound fantastic. <laughs> um, but this is what they have to say about aging. The following is a preliminary list of states that older people might feel vulnerable to. Untimely or degrading death, lack of physical care and health care, oversupply of care and interference, 
poverty, exclusion from participation in society, loss of autonomy and dependence, institutionalization, lack of social contacts, and loneliness. And as I was researching that, I was like, shit, Blanche and Jane have all of those. Yeah, as do I. (laughs) Check, 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 and check. But it just made me think about, like, those dynamics between um, Jane and Blanche. You know, Jane's lack of money as Blanche controls the finances because she has the most successful career. Um, Jane's dependency slash addiction to alcohol, uh, as well as her mental health issues. And then, of course, Blanche's disability and dependence on Jane to care for her. And so, as I was mentioning, those two kind of puzzle pieces, they could work together, but not because they're both in it. Mm -hmm. They can't, you know, see their way out of it because they're both kind of still clinging to the past in many ways. They're still angry and bitter, so they can't see, well, my strengths are your weaknesses and my weaknesses are your strengths. That's right. So if we work together, we could actually, you know, be okay or or do better than we are now. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting that, like, the film kind of really plays to our sympathies as regards Blanche because she's in a wheelchair. It's a disability that we can see. Well, I, I had a bit of a question about this and, you know, feel free to spitball, Andrea, and, you know, listeners, let us know what you think, because I couldn't actually find very much about disability and whatever happened to baby Jane, yet to me, it's such a huge part of this film. Mm-hmm. Blanche is a paraplegic. She's confined to a wheelchair. She is in a not-friendly house to her situation, you know, so it's very easy for Jane to cut off access to multiple things to her. Mm-hmm. You know, the scene of her trying to get to the phone, like, you know, horrifying. You know, you feel the physical duress that she is under and that she's unable to act in that tension. And I think Joan Crawford does that so well. And I think on one hand, the film offers a portrayal of a person with a disability and the multitude of challenges they face from the physical to the mental. However, and this is kind of where my question comes in because, you know, it made me wonder how Blanche's disability came to be caused by herself and through her own rage, how it adds, or if it does add, kind of a moral layer to it. You know, that an accident is kind of punishment for this childhood grudge, and it should result in the outcome of being trapped and then dying on a beach. Mm-hmm. And again, I, obviously, our conversations about disability in 2022 are much different than they were in 1962. Yes. But the reveal at the end, as we were talking about, that the accident and Blanche's disability is caused by herself is such a big turning point throughout the film. Mm-hmm. It just reframes everything we've just seen because Blanche, who has been this overly open and kind woman, has a secret. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a secret that any of us wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Like, her sister has always been shitty to her, and she was shitty to her that night. And just her rage got the best of her. I was questioning, like, morally how the film sees this. And I don't know if I have an answer, but it's it's a question I put out there. Yeah, and I, I think it's a great question to put out there because I feel like it's a question that the film kind of— throws in the audience's face. Like, how does Blanche's revelation change how you see the film? Were you seeing her as the victim by virtue of the fact that she was paraplegic and 
the fact that her sister's illness was less physical and more mental. Does that change everything? Like, their web of codependency is so, so layered Mm -hmm. that really that's just kind of one aspect of it. How much should that change the narrative for you? And that's kind of that's kind of the ugly mirror that this film sets up in front of you. Yeah, no, I think it is. It's going to be a personal thing for everyone mm-hmm. um, as you watch it. So I don't think there is like necessarily a definitive answer to it. Just a bit like Jane's mental health. I mean, Jane is kind of portrayed as the antagonist throughout the film. However, her rage, which you know has kind of always existed um, at her sister, you get that little like snippet in the scene when they're children of her snap being at Blanche, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, seems to have only have grown since the accident through the resentment. And I mean, you know, there are hundreds and thousands and millions of instances of the pressure that is put on the caregivers of someone with a disability Mm -hmm. and how challenging that can be. And, um, you know, again, we'll talk about burden of care very shortly, but, you know, these two are just put up against each other their whole lives. And as they have faced, you know, a mental decline and a physical decline, They can't get themselves out of it because they've, you know, stuck too hard in their own wheelhouses. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk a little bit about Elvira, the maid, Uh who, you know, I think we could look at her at very high level as, you know, she's an ally to Blanche, but she's also crushingly willing to believe Jane or accept the money offered to her that like, no, Blanche is fine don't need you today, goodbye. Mm -hmm. Whereas Elvira was someone who's really, you know, trying to help her, um, what we see at the beginning. And only towards the end of the film does Elvira act, which causes her death from Jane. Mm -hmm. Um, While she is perceived to be a peripheral character, she is central to the plot, not only through her death, which precipitates a lot of Jane's downfall, but also as an example to the audience of how the sisters interact. So Blanche is very, you know, warm and kind to her. And Elvira's like, you're going to take me with you, right? And she's like, yeah, of course I am. And Jane is a dick to her. And so we get to see a lot of the sisters' personalities, initially how the film wants to present them, through the character of Elvira. And Elvira is a black woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, black women were often in service positions during this period in the early 60s. It's still feels a very kind of white gaze Mm. um, in many ways, taking a marginalized uh, experience in community and just kind of putting them as a plot linchpin in it. And again, this is a story that is dealing with so many things. And, um, you know, I'm not angry that the character of Elvira is included, but I feel like she's also kind of forgotten about pretty quickly. Yes, I feel like she's kind of a plot device to kind of show the tension between actual care and paid care and how paid care can be manipulated and can be sympathetic, but at the end of the day, it's a job, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of wanted just to end a little bit about aging and that line, which we've already talked about. What do you mean? All this time we could have been friends. And I felt like it's heartbreaking for them. And for us, it's heartbreaking because we've come to care for one or both of these women throughout the film. 
But it also feels a bit like a warning to us. That's mm-hmm. where this film actually feels subversive. I feel like it wears the politics, you know, of the misogyny of the Hollywood system, the way, you know, infighting is, you know, championed between women. I feel like it's pretty overt. So it kind of feels like that warning to me. And also when I was thinking about aging and horror, um, aging and horror kind of feels a bit like a cabin in the woods. Like when you age, it just becomes more and more remote and you're so reliant on other people around you. And so the fact that they weren't friends, the fact that they didn't get along and they kind of fought with each other was um, a big part of their downfall. Totally. And I think that last line, I mean, the reason it hits me like a ton of bricks is because it was so accepting. It was so accepting of the truth, but also so dismissive of all the resentment that boiled up. And it was never about the conflict between the two of us. It was always about between us and them. And we could have been a team. And that actually, for me, when I watched the I feel a twinge of good for her because I actually feel like Jane had a full story arc in the way she accepted that truth. And it made me forgive them both and love them both and there was no villain and that ambiguity is so delicious. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic for a reason. And not because they're psycho, because they're not psycho. And I do want to talk a little bit about the film's legacy because, you know, obviously it's a very emotional film for a lot of people, but it's also a very camp film for a lot of people. It's fabulous. It is. We can't help it. And I found a really great academic article called The Death of Camp, Gay Men and Hollywood Diva Worship from Reverence to Ridicule by Daniel Harris, and I'll link this in the show notes. And I think it kind of speaks to, you know, a lot of the preoccupations of the film, how it's framed with, like, Blanche's films coming back on TV and the way we view the real-life politics of Davis and Crawford playing these characters. And Harris writes that, without reruns, there is no camp. For camp is about the death of glamour, about the shattering of the sacrosanct illusion of the actress's immutable aura of youth and invulnerability, about knocking the idol off her pedestal and dragging her through the mud, subjecting her to decrepitude, to the same minute scrutiny to which the medium of film once subjected her beauty. That for me is like, I get that. That's it. It's it's the reality mixed with a bit of playfulness. There's Mm. a bit of a wink and a nod that I think Harris's definition of this interpretation of camp has that I think whatever happened to baby Jane also has. It's Mm. saying, we know you think these two hate each other and maybe they do. And here's a story about them hating each other and why maybe they shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that uh, contradistinction within it is camp. I think so. I think so, too. Well, Andrea, before I wheel you onto the beach, should we um, move on to our next film? Let's move along to our next film, which was an interesting pick. This was Alex's suggestion. I think we watched it together, but apart. (laughs) This was a film we watched, like, yeah, it kind of came out or came to us around the start of the pandemic. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So we watched it separately, remotely. And this was a big one for from our listeners mm-hmm. to talk about. And this is 2020's Relic. When was the last time you spoke to her? It's been a few weeks. Gran? Mom? Mom? She called me a few weeks ago. I think she was scared. She thought someone was coming into the house.
Do you know where you were, Mum? I suppose I went out. What's this? I was on the property when your grandfather inherited it. His mind wasn't there in the end. You can't put Cran in a home. She can't live on her own anymore. She has to be watched. Everything all right, Grant? I thought this was where it got in. Who? Whoever it was coming into the house. Mum, what is it? It's here. Under the bed. There's nothing under the bed, Mum. Will you check for me? I can see you. with mother and daughter Kay and Sam driving out of town to investigate the disappearance of Kay's widowed mom, Edna. They find Edna's house empty and locked from the inside. In digging around, Sam discovers that Edna had a falling out with a neighborhood boy, Jamie, after she locked him in a closet and forgot about him, apparently. Alone in the house, Sam is creeped out by sounds in the walls, and Kay is tormented with nightmares about her grandfather, who died alone in a cabin nearby. Finally, Edna turns up in her nightgown with muddy, bare feet, refusing to answer questions about where she's been. But her behavior continues to be erratic. She's sweet one minute and hostile the next, even forgetting that she gave Sam a ring and accusing her of stealing it. Eventually, Sam finds herself lost in one of the house's closets, which appear to close in on her. She escapes by knocking holes in the moldy walls and reunites with Kay, who is being pursued by a crazed and deformed version of her mother. The pair are about to leave the house when Kay decides she can't leave her mom. She goes back in and starts peeling away Edna's ragged skin, revealing a shriveled black creature inside. Sam joins them, and the three of them lay on the bed. The film ends with Sam noticing a black bruise on Kay's back, the same that Edna had at the beginning of her ordeal. Real cheery film. You know... It's really not. This is writer-director Natalie Erica James' first feature film. She's a Japanese-Australian filmmaker who is quoted as saying that she adapted her personal experience watching a loved one succumb to Alzheimer's through the lens of a Japanese-style gothic horror movie. And, you know, much has been made about the ending. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you did a lot of reading about it. Uh, It reminded me an awful lot about Under the Skin, where it's just kind of like, oh, she's something else that needs to be kind of exposed and understood and embraced. And, you know, that ending might come from the Japanese custom of bathing the deceased prior to funeral. 
Yeah, I will say, I, I think Andrea and I were initially, um, just to speak for you for a moment, a bit cool on this film when mm-hmm. we first saw it. Um, but we definitely took note because it was one that I think resonated with a lot of you out there listening to this. And I have to say, I enjoyed this more on my rewatch of it. Okay, I knew it was important to so many people. So I was like, this is something we should do. And I was a little like, okay, I'm eating my broccoli now, even though I like broccoli. But, you know, I'm eating, yeah, what don't I like? If I had to eat a plate of mushrooms for you, Mm. which horrifies me. But if I had to do it for Andrea, I would. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was, I think, a bit more pleasantly surprised, um, to be really honest. um, It doesn't quite stick the landing. It sticks the landing emotionally for me. But I also find this kind of mythology and the supernatural entity that is uh, creeping throughout this film really interesting, and I just wish it was more explored. I wish they closed the circle on it a bit more because I'm like, ooh, a haunted stained glass out in the Australian rural area. That's interesting. And I just want it, like, not a lot, just a little bit more just to— you know, bring it a bit more full circle. I agree with that. I had a really similar experience where when we were first watching it, we were like, what's going on? I don't I don't understand, and I don't think I quite like it. And on the rewatch, I was like, okay, there is some deep themes here. I'm sure this, I, I understand why this has resonated with so many people. But again, I also felt like it didn't really stick the landing in that the metaphors didn't super make a whole lot of sense. The idea of the relic, which was the stained glass window that was transplanted from the cabin that the grandfather died in into the house. I feel like there's The Shining, Mm -hmm. which is a haunted house. It's a haunted hotel who uses Jack and his alcoholism and his white guy rage as a conduit for violence. That works really well. But here I feel like I was left wondering, did the house cause her dementia or did it torment her more effectively because of it? Was she transformed by her dementia? I find that a little bit problematic. Yeah, because she does say at one point, like, it waited till I was weak enough. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But, oh, no, you're a black creature at the end of it. Yeah. Um, And it just, it was like I missed a few logic steps there. And I find purely personal for me, I get hung up on that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I think it did resonate a lot more with me this time having, you know, lost my grandmother a few months ago. And I was not close with her, but I, you know, definitely felt her passing. My mom certainly felt her passing. And they, you know, had a a very up and down relationship, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think kind of experiencing this loss through mainly my mother really, I think, amplified the emotional aspects of this film to me Mm -hmm. um, because my aunt really stepped in in the last few years to care for her full time. Mm -hmm. And my mom also in the last year really, you know, was coming in more and seeing her and spending more time. And what happens when you lose a loved one who you have a complicated relationship with and they're not themselves at the end? And that is, I think, such a a major life experience, and I think it's something a lot of us experience, Mm -hmm. um, that we don't talk about because, again, we talked about the taboo, we talked about all of that, but one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about Relic was, um, well, whatever happened to baby Jane was this duality of aging and, you know, growing old through this very uh, particular lens 
Relic is about end of life through a multi-generational lens, mm-hmm. um, and it combines uh, the logistics of care with emotion and reality. Yeah. I felt I felt a lot for Kay and for Sam in watching the film the second time. And, like, again, you know, hearkening back to our initial conversation about hagsploitation, psycho bitty, like, this is not a monster. This is a human being, and these are—this is a story about the women who care about her. Yeah, and I think— you know, the moment that you identified in your synopsis of the ring. Uh, like, it's such a touching scene. It's such a little cheeky moment between Edna and Sam when she gives her the ring. And, you know, they're just having a little joke about Mom Kay. Um, but it's all well and good. And then the turn mm-hmm. when they don't remember is devastating. Mm-hmm. It, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's analogous to my experience with an alcoholic dad where mm-hmm. he could be several different people depending on when I got him, depending on how many glasses he's had that night. And I also even kind of see it in myself. And that's that's kind of something that I was, I was wondering whether or not I wanted to, to insinuate that, you know, my mental health has been um, poor uh, these past couple of years. They've been kind of de- declining. I've been a little bit uh, out of control of it. And I feel my cognitive, I, I just turned 40. It might even, I might even be in my own head that, that I'm not remembering things the way I I used to. Maybe I never remembered things really well, but it's a horrifying feeling to not feel in control of what's happening. Yeah. And the film tackles that on so many levels that we're going to get into. So one of the things that really struck me about this film um, was a term called burden of care, which is something I'd heard a lot about. And so this was my opportunity to really dig into it. And I found a New York Times article, which, of course, we'll link in the show notes, called The Costly, Painful, Lonely Burden of Care. And it's by Mara Altman. Um, and Altman writes, the U.S. healthcare system relies on and takes for granted the quote, invisible army of people, mostly women, who keep the system functioning by performing home care for the many people who are, quote, too well for the hospital, end quote, but, quote, too sick for home, end quote, as well as those on end-of-life care. And Altman talks about a lot of things, including the ramifications of the caregiver, uh, including their mental health and finances, which are impacted, and that this burden of care, this duty to care is seen as a moral duty or obligation rather than or as well as a, quote, economic activity. And in this piece, Altman interviews an author and writer by the name of Kate Washington, who wrote a book called Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America. And Washington says, if your earnings are lower than they would normally be because you're caring for a family member and you can't save or pay into Social Security, it can lock the whole family into a cycle of lower wealth and economic instability. So there is not only, I think when you're caring for someone, this in that way, this notion of like, could this happen to me? Mm -hmm. Am I next? That that hereditary quality to it. But also when you take time out of your life, when, when your life has to stop or adjust, and we see that a bit with Kay, you know, talking to her work and, you know, working on the side, working in her mother's house, which is overrun with things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, with Sam, who's saying like, oh, I, I work at the bar now. I don't work at the art gallery and I can just stay here now. It is, I have this flexibility with yeah, my youth. Yeah. It is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Um, and that full-time job means that you kind of have to pause your life. Yeah. In order to do it. And again, it, I think is Altman and 
Washington point out, a very invisible form of labor. Yeah, and I love that because I also hear a lot of rhetoric, and it's something that Sam echoes in the film is like, isn't this just kind of the circle of life that your mom changes your diapers and then you change hers? And, you know, I don't have children. You don't have children. Most of my friends do not, but some of them do. And I think I actually hear that more from my sisters. It's just like, well, who's going to take care of me when I get old? I had a friend say that to me um, years ago when I was kind of coming into my decision of like, I don't think I want children. Mm -hmm. And I said that out loud at at some event we were at. And she was like, who's going to take care of you when you're older? And I just thought, that's a horrifying reason to have a child. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's indentured servitude. Indentured servitude. And who's to say your child will care enough and be with it enough to take care of you? And then there's that. Like, it's a whole fucking block of Jenga that's about to topple over mm-hmm. when you when you pair it out like that. But nobody talks about it because it seems like such a moral obligation. Yes. And it's funny because, you know, with my grandmother's passing and, and conversations I've had with other friends, I've been gently trying to sometimes directly bring it up with my parents. Like, have you thought about your end of life care? Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to be the one overseeing it. So what do you want to happen? Mm -hmm. And my dad, who's 10 years older than my mom, was like, oh, well, that's a good point. I I should think about that. And my mom was like, nope, we're never going to die. Not going to die. And I was like, Diana. Yeah. I'm going to make these decisions. uh, You You can weigh in now or not. That's personally something I'm working on. I kind of know my end of life plan. Uh Actually, one of my goals for this year is to actually sort out a will. Okay. Um, I have like insurance through life insurance through work Mm -hmm. and it's pretty generous. 50% of it goes to my parents. uh, 50% goes to you. What? Yeah. I told you that. No, no. But it's my parents will probably take the cats if they're still with it. Sweet. I promise I will use your money to do good. It was for all the editing you did for free for those first eight years. Realistically, I have a feeling you're going to outlive me by a long shot. I mean, probably, but it's definitely something I've thought about and like, what do I want my end of life care to be? Uh And I'm on board with like assisted suicide. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, me too. I'm like, that's kind of my like, if I'm, you know, and and that's not to say I'll make it to that stage, but if I do, I want to make a plan. Um, We're lucky in Ontario that there are ways to do it. Uh And that's kind of the plan I want to take, though. I do really imagine like you and me and a few with my other close friends living in this ramshackle house. And basically, I think the last thing I'll see in my life is my friend Chris putting a pillow over my head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Basically, I'll just be like, Chris, I think it's time. And he'll be like, I want your bedroom. Mm -hmm. And just that'll be it. And I'll be like, great. That's how it started. That's how it should end. (laughs) (laughs) Chris listens to this podcast. So I think he's, he's probably like taking notes and probably... Some things now, right now. My folks have been very, very economically frugal throughout their lives. And so they have planned for themselves and they have oh, taken for care them. of themselves. And they uh, they love going on cruises. They love traveling. They know how they want to spend what remains of my inheritance and they've got uh, they've got their plans all set and you know I do have two sisters who have children and so I often think that you know when that burden comes to pass it's going to fall to the one who doesn't have children it's going to fall to the one whose career is a bit so you know it's nothing that I 
thought of very much before these last couple of years, but it's something that's on my mind now, especially watching Kay in this film. Yeah, it's something that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, how we've aged out of the Sam age group and now we're in the Kay age group. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we're ticking that box on the Patreon survey. And it's a complicated thing. And um, I like the way that Altman and Washington kind of identify that it's perceived as a moral duty and obligation, but it's also an economic one. But how dare you complain that you don't have the money to take care of your sick something? And I mean, I don't know any parent and child and adult child that doesn't have some kind of complexity to their relationship. Sure. Even the best parent-child relationships I know have complexity and tension to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a big fucking ask. That's a big ask, and it's a big ask that societally we are going to have to reckon with in a big, big way. I saw some very scary stats when I was doing research about, like, the boomers are aging, and the birth rate has declined, and there's going to be a huge population of elderly people who need palliative care that the government is not prepared to absorb, and we are heading into a crisis of that yeah. nature uh, projected by everyone who studies in this subject. It's scary. Yeah, and I think— Relic taps into all those things like throughout this film. They're also exploring the economic realities of it and, you know, going to a nursing home and what is that like? And that was crushing. This has waterfront view. Do you remember that view? I remember it just being a bunch of, like, buildings and cranes. And Kay cried in her car about it afterward. And I almost feel like Kay is kind of construed as an antagonist early on because she seems the less sympathetic. But holy fuck, this is all on her shoulders. And I also thought it was interesting that in the film, when they kind of first get into the house and, you know, Edna hasn't shown up yet and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Sam is kind of, like, exploring and looking through things and Kay is cleaning. Yeah. It's this immediate role she, like, clicks into and is yeah. like, I'm going to do it. And frankly, like, to be very honest, I saw myself doing that. Yeah. Um, it's my love language. That's yeah. how I care. Yeah. And I'm like, I see versions of myself in this. Ooh. It's the ghost of, like, Christmas future. And then when you consider that Edna has dementia— slash Alzheimer's that throws a whole other thing into it where Edna may or may not be a willing participant in these arrangements that are being made. And so my, for myself, doing research on this film, I had to kind of unpack dementia and Alzheimer's and like what the difference was. So in assessing whether or not the entity haunting Edna's house is dementia and whether or not that metaphor works, I did a little bit of research. And dementia is a general term for symptoms like decline in memory, reasoning, and other cognitive skills. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia and also a cause of dementia. Alzheimer's is a brain disease that accounts for 60 to 80% of dementia cases. There are a handful of other diseases that do the same, but Alzheimer's is by far the most prevalent. And I had a sense, just pop culturally, that it happened more to women. And so I did some research on that, and I consulted the Alzheimer's Society. And dementia affects more women than men. Women tend to live longer, but women with dementia outnumber men two to one. Like in the notebook. Just like in the <laughs> That's the second notebook reference of this episode. 
It rules. But here's what the Alzheimer's Society said. They said that they do conduct research on animals, but the site notes that, quote, data from female animals has generally been ignored in brain research. In the past, researchers have dismissed data from female animals or results from drugs trials that involved them. And that data was seen as, quote, too odd or inconvenient. So basically, we've got this mental degenerative disease that afflicts women more, but because science is science, and science are like, ah, women and men are the same when they're monkeys or rats or whatever the fuck, they dismiss the data. And today, the use of female data has sparked a lot of debate amongst dementia researchers. I was actually blown away that the site even admitted all this. It's almost like hanging up your dirty laundry. According to the site, they have a better understanding of the role of estrogen on the brain, When estrogen declines, you become more likely to develop dementia, which is why after menopause, women are often prescribed hormone replacement therapy. And I'm sure you can imagine that that hit me like a ton of bricks the past couple of years where I have not only gone through menopause, but like I just attributed it to depression, to COVID-19. But like my cognitive ability has gone way down to the point where I laugh at it, the fact that I don't remember stuff or I get stuff wrong, but I feel like I'm on the precipice of that. And I feel like this website generally admitted that science is only kind of getting a whiff of it. Crazy, right? Great. (laughs) It's like women's studies. It's like a women's disease. Like, what? it happens to them more. Big deal. But it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And it's a huge deal because, um, and obviously this isn't the case in every situation. In my personal experience, those who have had to care for someone in some kind of mental decline or in elder care have been the women, the daughters. That's not everyone. That's not 100% of the cases. So um, please don't think that we're saying that. But it just feels cyclical in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and very, you know, scary. It kind of like it reads as that like Grey Gardens thing. Yeah. Big Edie and Little Edie just kind of like feeding off of each other. And while it's camp and it's funny in some ways, it's also very scary in other ways. That's right. That's and, right. We laugh at it because it's too scary to look at. Yeah. So I think this isolation aspect to um, kind of mental decline and dementia and Alzheimer's is something that obviously is being talked about a lot and something that I think is kind of exemplified within this film. Obviously, there is this initial pang of guilt, which I felt like, like this real gut punch to when Kay goes to the police and they're like, when was the last time you talked to her? And she was like, oh, it's been a little while. It's been like a couple weeks. And like, I'm busy. I'm living my life. I'm sorry. Like I have a proper phone call with my parents like once every two weeks but we'll text in between but I'm busy they're doing stuff you know but also I I thought when they got into the story of Jamie it was really interesting and Jamie is the neighbor character and he has Down syndrome and he's you know this really energetic character that comes in to greet Sam and they've clearly got a rapport and they're chatting away to each other Mm -hmm. but he feels like trepidatious about Edna and with the house and everything and then when Sam catches up with his father we get the whole story about him being locked in the closet and Mm -hmm. then when Sam gets locked in herself she sees the scratch marks and it's horrifying and in many ways I saw like a similarity to Elvira in whatever happened to baby Jane Mm -hmm. Um, it's a character from a marginalized underrepresented community and this character kind of serves to make clear what is going on with the main protagonist or antagonist within this film so in one sense like inclusion is good in other senses it's like oh 
okay, this is maybe something we need to think about a little bit more. Is this a device to endure the abuse that yeah. tips us off? But I also wrong? think, you know, in the context we're talking about right now, it's also important that, like, clearly Jamie and Edna were close. Yeah. He was going over to her house. They were hanging out. You know, he was a big lifeline to her, maybe on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. Like, that's definitely the sense we get of it. And as this decline happens, as she begins to change, the relationship to Jamie does a complete 180. Mm-hmm. And it becomes something that is probably something very positive for both of them into something that is horrific for both of them, mm-hmm. given the way Edna talks about him. Yeah, and it's gutting because I think it introduces a theme of vulnerability. And, you know, you can be vulnerable, but you can also be the aggressor in that situation. And I, and I think it also, to your point, just speaks to that care comes at many levels. It's not mm-hmm. always elder care. It's, you know, care of children and care of young adults into their adulthood. It's it's a very nuanced conversation that we need to have about care. Yeah. So Jamie, as a character, is between him and Edna's father, Kay's grandfather, Sam's great-grandfather, these are kind of the leading men in this story. And I was thinking about men in aging because I was thinking about women in aging. And I was thinking about how, as a subplot, I don't think I put this in my synopsis, but it was great-grandpa was neglected to the point where he was found dead and practically mummified in his cabin. And it was the stained glass window from that cabin transported onto the house that afflicted Edna. And... I might be reading too much into this, but I was wondering if it is insinuated that dementia or Down syndrome is ignored in men. Mm. And I was thinking about George A. Romero's The Amusement Park. I haven't seen that. I don't blame you. (laughs) I know you're not the biggest fan, and it's Romero-y as all fuck. And this film is less of a movie than a cinematic PDA on the horrors of ageism and elder abuse. And it rests a lot on the shoulders of its lead, played by Lincoln Muzzell. And I believe it's on Shudder. It came out on Shudder, like, to some fanfare because it was the lost Romero film. But, like, it's a strange little film. Anyway, it's about um, this character who goes through a day at an amusement park that should be fun, but it turns into a nightmare because he's ignored by the staff, taken advantage of, robbed, etc. And at one point he befriends a little girl and reads to her until her mother pulls her away and then he starts to cry. And like, we're supposed to feel sorry for him because he's being treated so cruelly. But again, I feel like you can't ignore the factor of gender and aging Mm -hmm. and the fact that there is no counterpart to the crone, to the hag for men and aging. I think the aging man is like a tragic figure. I think probably most notably of figures like King Lear, mm-hmm. um, who's like out in like the wilderness, you know, basically yelling at clouds and they are seen as noble yet to be pitied and cared for. Tragic, but not frightening. Yes. Never threatening. Yes. You know, like an old man dying by himself in a cabin is sad, but he never hurt anyone in his little black creatureness the way Edna did. And so that kind of got me down a, a rabbit hole of looking at solitude as the third dimension. Like we're talking about hags as old women. They're not just old women, they're old single women. Mm. And 
Like here we've got this film involving three generations of women in this family. All three of them are either single, widowed, or divorced. They all live alone. They're independent, which is a fact that we take for granted until we witness Edna's decline yeah. and her independence becomes a thing. And so I found uh, I found an essay called Facing the Horror, Becoming an Old Maid. And it comes from the book A Table for One, A Critical Reasoning of Singlehood, Gender, and Time. And it really got me thinking about how singlehood factors in, like even when I picture myself an old woman, I've been in a relationship for almost 10 years, but when I picture myself an old woman, it's alone. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because, you know, statistically women tend to outlive men or or what, but this paper essentially examines how this trope endures in spite of so many changes to the normative family lifestyle. Everybody gets divorced, like like, the nuclear family has largely broken down. More and more women are single, and yet the older single woman is still scorned and feared. Well, I mean, you know, another iconic figure in this genre of characters, probably like Mrs. Havisham from Great Expectations, the uh, woman who was left at the altar and now she's just aged in this home alone by herself and is trying to match make these two kids together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it seems like it can be portrayed as this very isolating thing, but I, I feel like, you know, you'll definitely have some Pomeranians around. I'll be dragging you to the beach. Thank you. <laughs> I will appreciate that. I'll be like, tell me your lies, Andrea. But yeah, like when we consider these hags and exploitation films, they are single. They are on their own. And this essay really examines how old womanhood is context-specific and it's framed by expectations. For example, why are single women aged 30 and up considered old, whereas married moms of the same age are considered young mothers. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And this is what gerontology is. It's a study of aging that includes the psychological and cultural dimensions that lie outside the chronological age of a person. Chronological age is obviously easier to study, especially quantitatively, but it's not the whole story. Which is so funny because now as someone in my mid-30s who is single and like intentionally wants to be single for like ever? Mm -hmm. Question mark? I don't know, but like I'm very happy right now. I feel like I'm flourishing. I'm like, this is fucking great. It's like doing all this stuff. I'm like more in tune with so many different things. And it's sad that this kind of way of life is perceived or depicted as something that is hard and sad. Yeah, I've witnessed that in you, that you are absolutely thriving right now. But I can't deny that I feel like there is discrimination Mm -hmm. inherent in that, and there isn't even a word for it. Singleism? Hagism? I mean, that's the thing is like everyone's like, I'm going to be a bog witch. I'm going to be a banshee. And it's like we're trying to reclaim those kind of things. And yeah, yeah. I, I get that. It's it's very tongue in cheek, but it's, um, you know, it's a very strange thing because it kind of feels like, oh, I, I've seen through the looking glass. I've seen the man behind the curtain and didn't want to be with him anymore. So. I guess what I'm getting at here is that never in these narratives is there a discussion of, oh, my husband will take care of me. But in horror movies, it's always yeah. these women who are alone. And I feel like it paints a picture of age for women is solitude and age for men is being cared for by your partner. Like I was saying, aging is the cabin in the woods. It puts you in this remote place within your life that no one can touch you. And it's this horrifying thing because you have to go see grandma in the woods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Um, and because I think so often throughout society, we have cast old people out. I think most notably um, through literature, through narratives, it's old women, but I think you can often make the same argument for old men. However, I think narratives treat them a bit more through the lens of nostalgia. Sure. But they're... Remember their glory days. Yeah. Remember the man they were. They're not punished for the man that they've become or the forgetfulness or whatever the fuck. But there are still stigmas. And I think even through, you know, caring for older men, there are still, um, I, I think just, you know, as we were talking about with the silencing of aging of men, and, you know, other issues that happen to them, they are kind of silenced and uh, minimized. Mm -hmm. It still feels like that way, I think, with elder care for men. Sure. Um, It's often minimized because it's the dad, he's strong, and, you know, I think there's a lot of tension there. And then, you know, with moms, it's like, ugh, this old bat. Well, I feel like there's an assumption that men need to be cared for. So when men grow mm-hmm. old and they need to go into a home, it's like, okay, well, they don't have a wife. Whereas when women need that care, they're supposed to give that care. And that is a rupture in the system. That is a glitch in the matrix that we can't really solve. And it's uh, it's upsetting. And it's unfortunate. Anyway, I guess one thing I wanted to call back to as we wrap up this discussion, and this is something that is nattering at me, and I don't want it to be a criticism of this movie, but I just, the opening scene of Relic kind of goes in on Edna standing naked. And we see her from behind, and we see her body. And, you know, at the end, she's also naked again and becomes even more vulnerable by virtue of kind of being peeled and exposed in this way. And we see that her condition is contagious. I also recently watched The Taking of Deborah Logan, Mm -hmm. where, again, there are these gratuitous nude scenes. And so often when I think of hagsploitation, the only time that I feel that exploitation in films is when and we have this gaze on the naked, aged female body, and it's supposed to be horrific. And it does, in essence, feel a bit horrific, but in a very cultural, socially defined sense that why is this being put on a slab for me to observe? What is this lack of dignity that isn't afforded to men in that position? Yeah, I mean... Did you have feelings about the nude scene in Relic? Did you clock it the way I did? I feel like I've seen more and more older nudity in films, like even back to Hereditary, and, and things like that. But I felt like this film didn't need that oh. uh, at the beginning, especially. I get the peeling at the end, and I think that makes sense. But I feel like there is, you know, when we talk about elder horror, you know, I think there's a lot of things in both of these films that can be horrific, like Jane's murder of Elvira, the treatment of older people, you know, the way mental decline is handled and dealt with through society, uh, fucking haunted staying glass, yet I feel like the visage of a wrinkled older body is meant to be like the jump scare. It's meant to be the like, ah, look at that, it's old and you're not used to it. And in some ways I think filmmakers are trying to be provocative with it, Mm. yet I think there are more important things to be provocative with in this discussion. I agree with you. And I resent that. And the fact that that is the opening salvo of Relic, I'm just kind of like, <sighs> yeah, I don't like it. I'm with Relic. I'm like a 
six, six point five out of ten. Okay. I, I think it does a lot of good narratively to bring a lot of things to the conversation that are happening. I agree that in some ways it just doesn't like close the loop on a few things it brings up, which disappoints I think both of us and I think it could do more something differently, but again, you know, that's just our perspective. That's right. I, I still think that this is a really original feature. It's a, I'm always going to support a first-time female filmmaker yeah. who's, who's making something deeply personal. The metaphors didn't always land, but, I mean, that's fine. Because as we're talking about, exploitation is a very simple word for a very complicated subject. And we tackled something very recent and very, like, the opposite ends of the spectrum. Sorry, Peter Shelley, it didn't end with inside. I still don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But it doesn't end here. No. And I think this is a very rich subgenre that um, I hope more people continue to explore through not only the horror genre, but through others, because I think there are so many stories and experiences that need to be told. Uh, there is so much help that is needed, and there's so much support for everyone that is needed. Yeah. And uh, we need to do it now before we get into a crisis. Well, happy times. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Pick your crisis. Pick your midlife <laughs> crisis. Oh, dear. Okay, well, that is our episode on elder horror for right now. This is obviously a very personal and emotional subject, so Andrea and I have shared some of our feelings. Please feel free to share back your feelings with yes. us on social or mm -hmm. contact us over email, and we do try to respond to everyone as soon as we can. But we've got—it's maybe more fun, but still is depressing episode coming up for March. <laughs> really? Yeah. Tell me. Um, What's our next episode, Alexandra? <laughs> I've already forgotten. Would you like a ginger snack? Oh, it creeps me out when you call me Alexandra. Um, so, next episode, we are going to be doing something that I think Granny Andrea is going to have a lot of fun with. We are going to be talking about Pulse and Suicide Ooh, Club. Seance on a double bill. What, what? Yeah, so we're getting back into the Asian horror. These are two films that came out in the same year. Deal with similar themes in different ways. So Pulse and Suicide Club, that is your homework assignment for next time. Have fun with it because these are fun films. Are they? I think so. They're so absurd. Like we're going to pull out the dark and we're yeah. going to hang it up to dry, but they're still so fun to watch. <laughs> I love them. They're pretty great. So I think that is some good homework uh, to leave you with for right now. So until the next time you go out to see Granny in the Woods. Office hours are closed. Help the agent. One time they were just like you. Drinking, smoking, sex and sniffing.